Okay. So we're going to be at tonight. Acts 4. That's right. Okay. So Acts 4 23. Yes. Yes. Eventually. Well, no. 23. Dang it, kids. Yes. Yes, sir. These sweet boys come around, they start jacking with their daddy's Bible just to uh, just to mess with their daddy. Yeah, yeah. Alright, so we so the last couple weeks, uh, you know how we, we, we spent some time in here on a Sunday night saying what would be profitable, would be helpful if we would discuss or look at and consider as a church. And so prayer was one of the first ones that came up. So first Sunday night we came together and we was like, okay, let's talk about the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And in that, um, Jesus gives us a model, an example of how to pray or a model of what, a way to pray. And then last Sunday night we were talking about the high priestly prayer to John 17 and the example of Jesus. Tonight we're going to be in Acts 4 talking about the examples of the disciples and how the disciples prayed. Now, to kind of give us a little bit of understanding, somebody kind of, or somebody's, let's, tell me about the context of leading up to Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. So I've been, I've like, like I've been broadcasting for like two weeks, we're being Acts 4, so everybody's had an opportunity, if they wanted to, to like read. So tell me what's going on in the preceding verses in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John get arrested. Peter and John get arrested. All right, get arrested for what? Preaching. For healing a man for preaching. Okay, so are Peter and John both preaching? No. It don't matter, right? It's Peter. It said Peter started opening his mouth and started talking, but it really don't matter. Where are they at? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, but can I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not. Can you get a little more? Excuse me, sir? No. Yes, ma'am. They're at Jerusalem. Yes, ma'am. But like, is there like a specific area in Jerusalem? So like when... Do what? Yeah. They're at the, they're at the temple, right? Because So it tells you that Peter and John, okay, they're walking in at the hour of prayer, right? And that's where they see the lame, the lame beggar there, right? And that's when they look at him and they heal him. So they're right there at the temple mount. They're right there outside the temple, okay? Which is, I think matters when you start thinking about what is going on and where you are doing it at, alright? It it matters about kind of the the setting because they're not in some back alley. They're not just off in some muscular place. They're not behind closed doors. I mean, they are right there at the Temple Mount. They heal the lame beggar. People start getting excited, right? People start running around and then it says in the preceding verses, so then Peter starts preaching, okay? He starts saying, you all are wondering how this guy got healed. We're telling you that it is in the name of Jesus Christ that he he got healed. Jesus Christ gets all the glory. The power of Jesus Christ gets all the credit. It's not because we have some, you know, <clears throat> essential oil that we gave him that healed him really fast. Okay? We, we've, got, we've got, you know, we've got what? What's the timeline between Jesus' ascension and like all, like where's the timeline here? Like Jesus was on the cross to now. So we know for sure that we are past 50 days because Pentecost was 50 days after. So, But we really don't know as far as you have Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2, right? 
and three. Two and th- yeah, two and three. And so we really don't know if it's been a week, if it's been ten days. I would th- I would think it would be fair to say that it is recent history. So they are being able to point back and say, remember all this commotion that happened in town, and remember when our religious leaders crucified this guy, and remember the three days later the big earthquake, all that stuff there are now pointing back. So as Peter and John are proclaiming, hey, this is how this guy got healed, what happens then to Peter and John? They get arrested by who? The Sanhedrin. Okay, who are the Sanhedrin? They're like the the religious leaders. Okay, so you had, when you think about the religious leaders, you have the high priest, and then you have have Sadducees and you have Pharisees. Alright? The Sadducees was what I think of being like the Senate. Okay? They were a deliberative body, and they were kind of help leading um, the government, the Jewish government that is there. So they're helping leading the people. The Pharisees is what I, I think of like being the House Representative, but they were mostly the people that were the textual experts. They would copy the Bible. They knew how many letters. So if you said, how many letters are in the book of Genesis, and where are the markings? I mean, they had the Word of God memory. So they were the experts, where the Sadducees were more of the political leaders. Then the Sanhedrin was a collection of these leaders that were gathered gathered together, and they would come together as like a council. And so the Sanhedrin had their own temple guards, and they had their own employees, and their own persons, and they had their own people. So the Sanhedrin was this religious council that would then come together to issue judgments, or rules, or opinions, or suggestions, or if there were were questions about the Jewish law, the Jewish religion, or the Jewish way of life, the Sanhedrin was this deliberative body that would come together to make these decisions. So, as the story gives us, Peter and John are right outside the temple. The temple courtyard, the portico, if you will, that's right out there. I mean, so they're like out there in the grass, right? And they're preaching. How many people get saved? 5,000. 5, okay? So 5,000 people. So what? So why that matters is, is it wasn't like they had like 15 people out there and like just making a fuss. Does anybody know who... Why am I doing this? Anybody know who Preacher Bob is? Okay. So... I don't know why I'm going off on this rabbit trail, but you need to know this. This is this is good information for you. So, 2001 on the campus at OSU, okay? You would go. My mom can tell you there was this big old the fountain that used to be out there in front of the grass. You remember that out in front of the big building and from the library, okay? So, out there there's a big lane, and preacher Bob would come out there, and he actually had a a, a, a milk crate or a box or whatever a soapbox, and he actually stand on this thing, and he would do like street preaching. And he would sit out there and people would be coming from the student union, going to the library, moving their way all through campus. And so it was kind of like an entertainment show. I mean, that sounds really, really bad. That sounds really bad. But it was kind of one of those things. The word would get around campus, Preacher Bob's here. And everybody would then want to come and hear him, hear the hecklers, and, and hear the back and forth. But at the most, I mean, there'd be like two or three hundred people there. At most, that would be, you know... Being a part of the Preacher Bob experience. That's what I think of is Peter and, Je- Peter and John are sitting there and they're preaching. But it's not just a couple hundred people. You've got at least 5,000 because at least 5,000 got saved. So there's got to be more than that that are there. Thousands and thousands of people. And then what happens? The Sanhedrin come and like 
don't have your permits, <laughs> don't have permission, come on. So they arrest them, right? So they arrest them. Now this is Acts 4. So they arrest them. They bring them in front of the Sanhedrin and for the council. And what did they do? Can you summarize? Uh, let's say uh, verse 5 through down through verse 22. Can you just give me a summary of what happens? They tell them to quit preaching. Yeah, yeah. So they tell them, don't do it anymore. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Came back and told them to start preaching. So they looked at him and said, stop it. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Then, verse 20, you've got Peter and John are sitting there and they're looking at the Sanhedrin and they say, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, guys, we're going to do what we think God's telling us to do and you can tell us all you want, but we're going to do what God tells us to do. That's kind of the backdrop. A lot more that is going on. But that is the backdrop of where we're at. Verse 18, they are sold. Stop speaking in His name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Then they said, we can only do what God would tell us to do. And then in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, it says, when they released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said. Now this begins a recorded prayer. Now there's another prayer that we have recorded of the disciples. And what prayer was that for? Does anybody know? I'm going to send you all to Bible college because you all could brush up. So there's, there's, this is only the second prayer that we have recorded from the disciples so far in Acts chapter 4. The first prayer is when they're finding the replacement for Judas. Any of this? Any of this? Well, they cast lots, yes, but then they prayed, God, would you reveal who do you want to fill that position? Now, who, does anybody remember the name of the person that was selected to fill that position? Matthias. Matthias. It says in your, you, you guys can cheat you. It says in your Bible. Okay, so that's the first prayer is when they're praying, hey God, would you, uh, would you then guide and direct this process so whoever you want to fill Judas's spot will be revealed. So that's the first prayer, and that's not really that eloquent or that really awesome of a prayer when you're thinking about the power. Now, this is the second prayer. Why I think it's important for us is because you're hearing how they prayed and it's a model for us how we should pray. Now, a couple weeks ago we talked about the three up and the three down. Does anybody remember? So when we're praying to God, we need to talk about. We need to be thinking about the model that we get is thinking about our the place we're praying, right? The posture of our hearts and of our minds when we're praying, and then the purpose for why we're praying. So I want you to see this in uh, verse twenty-four. Yes, verse 24, and we're going to look down through verse 28. I kind of, I'm, I'm splitting these up in half. So verse 24 down through verse 28 is like the first half. And then you get to verse 29 and verse 30, which is just one sentence. I'll, I'll touch, touch on that again. But verse 29 and verse 30 is like the second half. And then verse 31, and verse 31 is kind of then the result. So let's look at these two halves. So the same way I think, I think we can make a case that we see three up. And then we see three down in the example of the disciples. So, verse 24, listen to their prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes scripture. Anybody know where he's quoting from? Psalm. Psalm? Psalm where? 
Psalm 2 and what? Isn't it so nice when you have a little mark on your Bible that tells you? I mean, it makes you an instant Bible scholar. Okay, so he's quoting from Scripture. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever you or to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I think we can make a case that you see the place, the posture, and the purpose right there in what they're saying. They're saying, God, we recognize who you are. We recognize who we're praying. We're recognizing your authority. We also want to make sure and humble ourselves and submit ourselves to whatever your will is. You see, some of the things that we don't catch with our Western mindset is that when we're sitting, they're sitting in front of these Sanhedrins, these are the same guys that maybe a couple months ago, you know, Jimmy was asking about the timeline. I mean, let's just, let's just throw out a number. Let's say it was 75 days. 75 days since this same group of people said, murder Jesus. This is the same group of people that has the authority and has the power to murder you again. And if you then fast forward in your Bibles and you get over there to Acts chapter 5, the second time they're arrested, what does it say? It says the second time the Sanhedrin had arrested, what they do to him? Beat him. They beat him. So you got these disciples that are sitting there and they tell him, we told you once, the second time, we're going to make sure you hurt us. And they whoop him. Now, that's not. I don't think it's just like you go up and you're just like, hey, you see that? Ha ha. And you... I don't think it's... I think they physically thumped on them. So when they're praying and they're saying, God, we understand. We understand who you are. We understand the power that you have. We understand the authority that you have. And we're not coming to say, oh, poor pitiful us. Oh, God, have you heard their threats? Oh, God, da-da-da-da-da. They simply said, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is, a, to me, a great mark of a posture of their heart when they come to God and say, God, we will submit ourselves to whatever your will, your plan, and your purpose is for our lives. You know, sometimes I think... We might be tempted to come to God and say, God, we deserve. God, I'm owed. God, I don't think this is right. God, I don't think this is fair. God, I don't think you should do this. All of these things come into place. And yet, this, this, these first, this first half, they're coming to God and saying, God, we don't have to understand it, but we want to come and submit ourselves in obedience to you. So that's why they say, that's why they quote Scripture. They talk about how all of these things, these external things around them, will be working against them. Verse 27, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. He, they're making this recognition of who they're praying to, the condition, the posture of their heart, and the purpose for their praying. But then, you get down to verse 29. 29 and 29 and 30. Your Bibles may be different. Mine is just one sentence, the way it is punctuated. Two verses. But I am going to argue tonight that this is the second half. This is the second set of threes. Now, I'm just going to tell you how it works out of my head. It may work out in your head differently. The way it works in my head, remember last time we were talking about the model prayer. I talked about you have the three things coming that you're praying to God and the three things you're asking from God, and that is today, yesterday, and tomorrow. 
Remember? So that daily bread, and that's, that's kind of a, a, a marker how to pray. So when it comes to these next three, the way that I think of it is they, me, and you. They, me, you. So when you're sitting there and you're praying, the way that I, I, I kind of work through this as far as in these two verses is they, me, you. So when you're praying and you're getting time in your prayer, sometimes you may hear people talk about the acrostic acts. A-C-T-S. Adoration. Confession. Thanksgiving. And supplication. That's right. Okay? So, but then there's other times you may just mark out in your Bible or may think about, so when it comes time to my prayer, how do I pray? So when they're asking these three things, they send the first three, the place, the posture, and the, the uh, purpose. They send that back up to God. And then these three they're praying back down is they, me, and you. So let me read these two verses. Tell me if you see where the they part is in these two verses. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your service to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do you see the they in that? Where at? Their threats. Their threats. That's right. That's right. So there's three elements to what these disciples then pray. They're saying, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. And that's it. I realize that none of you all spend probably the same amount of time that I spend with some of these texts. But they just got through getting in front of the Sanhedrin and they just got through threatening them. If you keep talking about Jesus, no, no, no. Not you can't keep having church. You can't keep healing people. If you keep talking about Jesus, your life is in danger. And they had the power to endanger their families, had the power to endanger their livelihood, had the power to, in, to endanger their entire extended family, had the power to kick them out of the synagogue and kick them out of the community, had the power to blackball them, had the power to ostracize them, had the power to ruin their lives. So they're not just saying, hey, we don't like you drinking Pepsi, we want you to start drinking Dr. Pepper. No. And they look at these disciples and they say, stop it. And the disciples just simply say, look upon their threats. Now, to me, and I don't think I'm going to do a very good job of communicating this. They could have said a whole lot more. God, did you hear what they said to us? God, did you hear how they said to us? God, do you understand exactly what could happen if they make good on their threats? God, do you realize the implications? Do you realize the challenge? Do you realize the burden that I'm under? Do you realize the duress that I'm in? They just simply said, look upon their threats, and then they went on. Now, here's the way that I think about it. They didn't whine. They didn't complain. They weren't fearful. They just saw the challenge. They knew it. God knew it. And they weren't going to dwell on it. It's easy for us to get fixated on the problem and stop seeing the solution. It's easy for us to just get fixated on all the things that are wrong. And we just we just go to seed on it. We just dwell on it. Oh, all the things that are bad, all the things that aren't working, all the things that are, are, are broken, all the things that are against us, all the, all the, all the, all the. Do you understand that we are already told that in this Christian life we are going to face opposition? 
So we don't have to go to dwell and say, oh, we're being oppressed. Oh, we're being challenged. We already know we should be challenged. And if we're not being challenged, it's probably because we're not being very faithful. And yet, part of the tendency is to just sit there and to just kind of just dwell on it. And it's like the disciples come in and say, yeah, we recognize that there are people that don't like us, but they aren't the answer. They aren't the solution. They aren't my source of hope. And so they recognize the they. They recognize who they are. The them. They say, oh yeah, okay. But notice how they just put it. They just said, look upon their threats and they move on. Can you imagine what that would be like if we just looked at Satan and said, you're a punk, we're going on. Takes all the power away. It's like, who cares? Chill out. Right? I was trying to think of his name all afternoon. The guy that played Texas Walker Ranger. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. <laughs> There's a scene I remember. He's sitting in this place and there's these four bad guys. And you know all the jokes. Chuck Norris is so tough, blah, blah, blah. There's this scene where Chuck Norris is in there, these four bad guys, you know. And these four bad guys are ganging up on him and looking at Chuck Norris like we're going to beat you up. And Chuck Norris just always had this look on his face. Now, Chuck Norris was a guy that starred in some... Uh, <laughs> you can go back and watch some reruns. They're even in color, Mr. Ben. They're even in color. So, but, but, but Chuck Norris just always had this look on his face like... He didn't care. Didn't care if there was five. Didn't care if there was 50. Didn't care if there was 500. He's Chuck Norris. He's not worried about it. Whoever it's going to be there, special effects is going to make sure that he whoops them all, right? And he never looks stressed. He never looks concerned. Chuck Norris understands there's bad guys, understands the bad guys want to But it's almost like Chuck Norris is like, you know what? They're not the focus. And sometimes... Sometimes we need to heed the model of the disciples. The disciples, they had a lot of opposition. They had religious leaders coming in and saying, be quiet. They had governmental leaders coming in and saying, be quiet. They probably had friends and neighbors that were saying, you know what, if you just wouldn't cause such a big ruckus, probably people wouldn't be so upset about you. You know what, if you just chill out a little bit, people wouldn't be so fired up. And all of these things are coming, and when it comes time to pray, when it comes time to pray, they just simply say, look upon their threats, and then they move on. They change the subject. I'm not saying... I'm not saying that we shouldn't recognize the challenges that we're facing. What I'm saying is when we come and we start praying about the they in our lives, is that take up the majority of our prayer time? Or is that just something that we say, God, we know it, and you know it, and we're giving it to you. So you have the they, alright? The they, and then the me. Where do you think the me is at? In these two verses. Grant your servants what? Speak the word with all boldness. You want to take a stab on what boldness means? Authority. Okay. Another idea? Okay. Confidence. Any other ideas? Courage. A willingness to be outspoken. A frankness. Plainness. Unction. Unction. 
Okay. That's that. Cheating's allowed. I had that already wrote in my Bible. I believe you, and you just happened to look at your wife's phone to make sure is that that's what it said. This is Webster's. Webster's? Yeah. Okay. Fearless before danger. Fearless. Or requiring a fearless, daring spirit. Okay. Impudent. So the disciples are praying, and what do they pray? They pray for boldness. You do understand there's a difference between a response and a resolve. Yes? There's a difference. See, a response goes something like, if they, then I. And there's this idea that a lot of times in our lives, we are caught responding to the things that come at us. Circumstances, the scenarios, the challenges, the struggles, we respond to them. And there's other things that come along in our lives that we have the opportunity to be resolved in. The resolve just says, no matter what, I will. So when we come to the disciples, they say, look upon their threats. That's the they. Then they move to the me and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, what you don't see is them qualifying it. They don't say, all right, God, would you give us boldness if they are nice? God, you will give us boldness if things go well. God, you will give us boldness if... We don't have too many problems at work. God, you will give us boldness and they have all these qualifications. No, they come to God and they say, God, will you give us the boldness that no matter what they do, our faithfulness will not be a response, but it will be a resolve. Let me give you an example. We see this in Scripture. You you think about Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, you have, who's the ruler? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar's in charge, and you've got three Hebrews. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Okay, so you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they've got this, they've got this towering figure, and what was the expectation, right? They were all supposed to fall down and worship. This all clicking, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's off on holiday. He's gone on vacation someplace. I don't know. And music plays. Shadrach, Meshach, they don't fall down, right? Nebuchadnezzar goes to him and said, you know what? I've heard that you all three won't fall down, so I'm going to give you an option. We're going to play this music again. If you fall down, good. If not, I'll put you in the fire furnace. You remember You remember what happens whenever he says it. I, and, and I'm going to take you back to Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. When he says that, Shadrach and Meshach... De- uh, no, I'm just going to read. Ah, my memory stinketh. Okay? Let me read for you what they say because I think the language that they use is like a mic drop moment in the Old Testament sense. So in Daniel chapter 3 alright verse 16 verse 16 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king Oh Nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter if this be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king but if not let it be known to you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up they look at him and say you know what we don't need to respond to you because we have already resolved we're not going to deny God That's what comes to my mind when I come back here to Acts chapter 4 and they say, grant your service to continue to speak with all boldness. They're not saying, may we respond well when the challenges come. They say, may we have the resolve that no matter what comes, we will be faithful. There's a difference. There's a difference in response 
versus resolve. And there's a difference when it comes to the boldness because the boldness can sometimes be conditional. I will be bold unless I'm asked a question I don't know the answer to. I will be bold as long as I don't feel out of place. I will be bold as long as other people around me that are agreeing with me. I will be bold as long as it's convenient. But as soon as the challenges get too tall or too high or too intense, we begin to waver. The disciples are praying, they, and then they're praying, me, and not just for boldness, but for resolve to say, we want to have the kind of hearts that are not dependent upon the waves or the winds of the culture, but are dependent upon the Word of God. In other words, I put this down in my notes. God set the tone, He set the agenda, He set the calendar, and He set the priorities. We are in a day and age that the church calendar is set by other calendars. Now, some of us will sit in here and go, well, we don't like that. Well, I don't have an overnight solution, okay? And I also think it's a pitfall if you say, well, we're not going to care what anybody else is doing. We're just going to set it in place. Because once upon a time, and somewhere where I hope to be in the future, is the church would release the calendar at the beginning of the year and say, okay, we're going to have children's camp, and we're going to have youth camp, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and this, and this, and this, and they would release the calendar. Then all the families in the church would then ordain or coordinate their vacations around the church calendar. So before I go out and expect the culture to work around the church calendar... I think there's some opportunities for us as a church to be better prepared as far as having these dates out there sooner, to be better prepared as far as having that encouragement out there and people knowing that. But we have opportunities to work right here. But at the same time, what does it say about the church when the church is always looking for a a schedule to tell us when we can do ministry? That's not boldness. And that's not a resolve. That is us taking the leftovers from other priorities in this town. I'm not saying that we just need to go out and boycott or ramrod. I'm not saying. Just... There's a stark difference there. So the disciples, they are praying. They're saying, would you give us boldness? The boldness that has a resolve. The boldness that is not acting out in response. But a boldness that continues to speak the word of God no matter what. Has anybody read Fox's Book of Martyrs? There are stories after stories. Sometimes I get in those stories and I start to think that it's like fairy tale. Like it's made up. Because some of these stories are just horrendous. How Christians were not just persecuted, but they were tortured. 
They were tortured for their faith and they were tortured for what they believed and they were tortured for what they stood for. And there's some podcasts that I listened to and one of them was 50 Baptists You Should Know. And so they went through uh, this church, they went through Sunday after Sunday for 50 Sundays talking about different Baptistic <laughs> figures that we should know about and why they are important. There's a, a Daily Christian Almanac that I listen to every single morning and it's a three to five minute snapshot about church history. It's not just Baptist, it's church history in general, but going back and talking about it's important to understand that the opposition you and I may face today is nothing like what has been faced historically. And if we don't have the resolve to stand up for the things of God now, how do we think that we're going to have the resolve to stand up for the things of God when it's personal or physical or tangible or it starts to be sacrificial? So they have the they. They now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. That's the they. Then you get to the me and then the you. Where's the you at? last part, right? Verse 30, right? While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, when they say, and your translation may be a little bit different, but in verse 30 it says, while you stretch out your hand. Who is the your that they're referring to? Who? God. That's right. So they're referring to God. So here's how I read it. When you take it all and you, and you look at it and you read it and you read it and you read it, they said, hey God, see the threat you handle the threat. We're not going to worry about the threat. Give us the resolve and the boldness to do what you tell us to do while you do what you're going to do. It wasn't like, would you please do this? Or if you have time to do this? Or if you're willing to do this? No, 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 no. While you stretch out your hand to heal, is there's this expectation. Like, God, well, we're doing this. You're going to be doing that. They knew their place. Say that again? They knew their place. They knew their place. But they also had an expectation that God was going to do what God said He would do. And I think we sometimes waver on that. Of having that confident expectation that God's going to do what God said He's going to do. Do what? Confidence. Confidence. Yeah. It's just like we they're praying and they're saying, God, we're going to do what you called us to do. We're going to do our part. Because God, we know that you're going to do your part. And if you look at the language, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders. So when they're praying to God, they're not praying, God, why don't you? They're not saying, God, will you? When they're praying about God, they're saying, God, we have confidence and we have a humble expectation that you will do what you said you will do. And because we know that you will do what you said you will do, we will do this. There's a both and. There's a our part, God's part. Back and forth. So as they're praying, them, me, but when they prayed to God, they expected God to be moving. They assumed that God would continue what He had promised to do. There was this expectation that we know what God is going to do and we want to be ready whenever God does it. Tell me, 
because this, this gets dangerous. Because you got a whole other side out there in the church culture today that comes in there and does the name and the claimant, like, you know, hey, we're going to say God's going to do all these things, da, 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 you know, and if you just believe it hard enough, then God will do it. And then those people get disillusioned and those get exposed for what they are, and then everybody's like, well, now we got to be careful. We can't go around saying God will do this because then we might find ourselves in the ditch of that side over there. But is it so wrong to say, God, you said you will do this. We are believing that you will do this. And so because we know that you'll do this, we want to be faithful. We want to be bold. Is that wrong? Because he said he'll do it. Okay. We're not assuming Okay. anything or expecting it. He said it. He said it. He'll do it. If he said he'll do it, okay. The same, or are they coming from the Word of God, or are they coming... Okay. Saw the thoughts. The truth is it true? Okay. So verse thirty, by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they've also just seen all this too. Like they're not just. It's not just us reading words. Like they they just got trophies. Like you know, like for me, yeah, like I look at it and I'm like, okay, those are nice words, but for them, they're like, we just got trophies. We just that guy just got healed. It's not because of what we're doing, it's because what God's doing. Like God's moving. You know, so it's they they've got a different context than what we do, right or wrong. I mean, we have a different context right but there's still opportunities that we have so let me try to put it to this way if you go up there in the study I got a number of pictures up on the wall one of the pictures that I have is from 2014 Falls Creek so what happened in 2014 at Falls Creek is the church where I was serving at the pastor before me had actually preached from the pulpit against Falls Creek Falls Creek, bad place to go. A bunch of people being bred down there. Bad place. Stay away. Do not go to Falls Creek. So I showed up there as Anis, and we weren't taking kids anywhere. So I said to people in the church, I said, can I take a group of kids to Falls Creek? They say, ah, you know what, we don't have a place to stay, and we don't really have the means. And I said, what if we had a place to stay? Would the church support me taking kids to Falls Creek? Well... You know what? We wouldn't stand in your way. So there was a little small cabin. Graham Baptist Church was the name of the cabin. It's no longer even there. But as you come in the main road, it was the first. It was there's several cabins. The first intersection you came to, Graham was right there. Ten beds on the boys' sides. Ten beds on the girls' side. Okay. They'd had a freeze, froze up all their plumbing, messed up a bunch of sheetrock. So I called the pastor at Graham, about ten miles north of Zanice, and I said, "Could we stay in your cabin?" And he said. 
no way, Jose, the cabin is not usable. I said, well, what if we got it usable? Could we stay in it for free? Because we had the manpower and the people to fix the cabin. They did not. They had the cabin. We did not. So we worked out a deal, and we went up there, replumbed it, re-sheetrocked it, fixed it, and got to stay there for free. So the first year we go, we take 14 teenagers, one, two, and three, and Mama. Mama and I, Jalen and I, were the cooks, the counselors, were the parents. But I had it in my mind that, you know what, God? I believe you put it on my heart. That week, five of the 14 got saved. Amen. <clears throat> now, the way I think about it is, is if I had just sat back and said, well all these obstacles, don't worry about it. And just not, I wouldn't have been able to see God prove Himself faithful. Does that make sense? So like whenever I think about this passage, I'm not looking and saying, God, I want a new car. I'm just going to believe enough that you're going to give me a new car. No, it's God, you have told me when your word is proclaimed, when your name is exalted, when people hear about me, when people see the difference that you have made in me, when people see all these things and people will respond. And so we can say, I can be bold because I know that God is still in the saving business. So whenever I hear Him praying, I hear Him praying saying, God, yes, they had seen these miraculous things. Lame people get up and walk. But you know what? I think it's even just as miraculous when I see people getting saved. Amen. You know, we, 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 we pivoted. We pivoted down to Summit. And last last week or last summer, sorry, last summer, Monday night they don't do the invitation at summit, right? Right? My memory, okay? They don't think they don't. don't they sometimes maybe do. I just remember the. It's not the big Falls Creek. Okay, it's either Monday or Tuesday night. I am sitting there, and Adam sends me a photo of the group of kids from this church and the number of hands that were raised making a decision. And then Adam would send me throughout the week the pictures of the decision cards. And not saying in a braggadocious way, hey, hey, look at all this. But just saying, look, God is faithful when we put in the work and the effort and we make the sacrifice to make these opportunities available. Then God will honor that and people's lives will be changed. That's what I think about. That's the way I look at it is is they expected God to be active. They anticipated that God would move and they assumed that God would continue what He had promised to do. And so they're praying while you stretch out your hand, while you heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They said, we are going to be bold because you are going to be faithful. And people will see your faithfulness because of our boldness. Could it be that people don't see the faithfulness of God like they used to because they don't see the boldness of God's people like they used to? I've been one to for 41 years. And this last October, we had a chance to go to Yellowstone. And you always think about it in Yellowstone, you always think about the geyser. And I don't know what everybody else thinks about before they've gone and looked at it. I've seen it. I'm glad I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. Now, I don't know. I, I didn't do a lot of research, but 
you know, that thing's been going on for a while. And when you see it in video or you see it on, on, on still photographs, you see the geyser and you're like, oh, it looks so big and it looks so majestic and it looks so awesome. And then you get there and there's that entire boardwalk and all of these benches. And it's like, I mean, this gets to be a pretty good spectacle. Hundreds and hundreds of people will show up and they have it in the visitor center on the sandwich board. They will say the next eruption is expected at X amount of time. And then usually 10 or 15 minutes before it, everybody starts kind of congregating up on this side on the boardwalk, on the geyser, and everybody's sitting there waiting. And they're waiting. And they don't know if it's going to be exactly at 9.23 a.m. or 9.22 a.m. or 9.25 a.m. But they're sitting there. Until it happens. And then everybody's like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And like the one morning we were there, it was so cold that when it was erupting, it started like a, a, like a fog, like a cloud because of the steam. And then you couldn't see the rest of it because it was all covered up in the steam. But I mean, people are like, ooh, and ah. And then after it's over, everybody just like mills on about their own, on their normal thing. Why do people drive all the way to Yellowstone? Because there's this geyser that erupts on the regular, has erupted, is erupted, and by all expectations will continue to erupt. So people like me will drive 18 hours (laughs) with five kids and a wife in a 30-foot travel trailer to go see this thing because I believe that it's going to happen when I get there because it is faithful. And we will spend money and we will spend time and we will spend effort and we'll be spend energy because we believe this thing's going to happen. And yet when it comes to the thing of God, we get a little bit more skeptical. <clears throat> well, I don't know if God will come through in this. I don't know if God can save this person. I don't know if God will honor this. I don't know if God will show up. And we start thinking, well, I don't know about God. And we forget that God is more faithful than old faithful guys are. And yet, the reason why, the reason why people still go to Old Faithful, because there are still people out in this world saying the geyser is still erupting. And there's still people going to see it. And there's still people coming home telling people about what they saw when they saw it. Because people continue to speak about the geyser, people keep going to the geyser. So if people stop in Wellston, Coming to hear about God, is it because God has stopped being faithful or because God's people have stopped telling people about God's faithfulness? So you have the they, you have the me, and you have the you. So as these disciples are praying, they know where they're playing, they got the place, they have the posture of their heart, they have the purpose for why they're praying, they're wanting to submit themselves to not only God's authority, God's timing, God's sovereignty, they want to submit themselves to God, but then as they're praying for themselves, they're praying that they, the me, and the you. They're saying, God, you know the threats, we're not going to dwell on it, we're not going to let that be what defines us. Here they are. God, when it comes to us, we want you to give us boldness. And more than that, we want to have the kind of resolve that it doesn't matter what happens in life. We will be resolved. This is what we are going to do. And then when it comes to you, God, we realize what you are faithful for. God, we realize what you can do. God, we realize what you have done, what you can do. And God, we want to be the kind of people that do not get in your way and are the kind of people that then point others to you. The they, the me, and the you. Now, tendency, 
And I hesitate to tell you this, but this is how my mind works. Maybe, maybe you're just like, this is retarded, or maybe you'll think maybe that's something worth put, filing away. <clears throat> to me, I have to have a system. It helps me whenever I have a system in prayer, whenever I have a system in Bible reading, whenever I have a system in preparation. If I've just got a system that I can kind of file away, just this shotgun approach, even when it comes to reading God's Word, I've got to have some type of a structure. Some people can just sit there and just kind of willy-nilly it. That is not me. So that's why when it comes time to praying, I'm thinking about the three up, the three down. I'm thinking about the place and the posture and the purpose. And I'm thinking about today, yesterday, and tomorrow. I'm thinking about the they, me, and you. I'm thinking about these things because these help kind of structure my prayer time. Now, when it comes to the me, and you may I, I, I shouldn't do this. Okay. I've already done it. So this is how I think about it. And it may be one of those things you may take it and go, that is retarded. I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to do with it. That's fine. Bless your heart. This is what helps me. Alright, so this is how I think about it. You have the me. So we're praying. They, me, you. Right? Okay? So you got the me. Now, you go to Acts 17, and whenever they're bringing Paul and Silas before the Thessalonica, Thessalonica council, what do they say about them? These are the men that turn the world upside down. Right? So, I turn this over. Now what do I got? We. Three W. I got three W. Thank you. Three three W. <laughs> All right. So I got I got I got three W. So this is how I think about it. So when it comes to the me, so I'm praying for they. Okay. I'm I'm saying God, you know the challenges. God, you know the opposition. God, you know all the things that are against us. Praying for they. I already know what I'm praying you about when it comes to God. So when it comes to me, how do I pray for me? Three W. I pray for three things to be true about my life. My worship, my walk, and my witness. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm praying for. Go to Luke. Please go to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Eli, will you go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1? And then Wyatt. Wyatt. Sweet child. Would you go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14? Okay, so whenever I am, when I'm praying for me, this isn't conceited. This isn't self-serving. This isn't, oh, let everybody see me. These are the things that I'm praying for for me. Because I can be very arrogant. I can be very prideful. I can say, oh, well, I, I don't have any problems with me. I've got everything's taken care of. So when I think about me, I turn it upside down because I want to be the kind of Christian that turns the world upside down. I want to be the kind of Christian, when they talk about Spence McConnell, you know what? Not only was he just a studly looking guy, but he turned the world upside down. They turn, he turned Wellston upside down. I know it's flattering, whatever it was. I'm just going to go with it. All right, so, so I'm going to pray for my, my worship, my walk, and my witness. So where do I get my worship from? Mr. Luke, with a barbaric yelp, would you please read Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Thank you. So the idea that Paul says, think about your daily life before God as worship. So I think about my worship. What am I worshiping? I'm going to worship something. I could be up in Kansas City right now, worshiping Patrick Mahomes. 
He's the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. I could be up in Kansas City right now worshiping Him, or I could be here worshiping God's people. I'm going to worship something. So the question is, what am I worshiping? And worshiping is a daily decision. Every morning I wake up, and the things that I do with my time, the things that I do with my resources, the things that I do with my talents, that is all an act of worship. So I'm thinking, God, guard my worship. Then, barbaric y'all, Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore... Louder... I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's right. So, Peter, or Paul, is writing and he is saying, guard your walk. Because you know what will wreck your witness? When your walk is not what it needs to be. And you know what will edify your witness is when your walk is what it needs to be. A lot of people, they want to go around town and they want their witness to be all of this in a bag of chips and their walk isn't where they're supposed to be. That's what happened to Jimmy Swagger. His witness and his walk were two different things. Right now, we have a whole political climate right now where you've got politicians that their walk and their witness are different things. What they keep next to the Corvette and what they say people shouldn't keep in Florida are two different things. Their walk and their witness are different. So, watch my worship, watch my walk. Mr. Wyatt, loud. In the same way. Where? Matthew 5, verse 14. You, go ahead, say it. You are the same way. Go ahead. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be moved. Through verse 16. (laughs) You know what I want. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and the glory of your Father who is in heaven. That's right. So they say, this is your witness. What is your witness? Your witness is that you are a light for the things of God. Your witness is that you are pointing people to God. And so he says, in the same way, let your light show shine before them that they may see your good works and glory to your fathers in heaven. So when I think about they, them, or they, me, you, and I get to the me, I turn it upside down, turn it into 3W, and I pray, God, would you expose the faults, the faults and the errors in my worship? Would you direct me in my walk? And may I glorify you with my witness. That's what we need to do. And I think, I think through that, there will be boldness that will come. Because when we focus on our worship and our walk and our witness, the boldness is just the byproduct. Because then we're just talking about everything we're thinking about. We're just talking about that. We're just spending our time. We're just talking about those things that are right there where we are at. Because that's all we're consumed with is worship, walk, and witness. So, I don't know if that helps, but that's something that I have used in my life to think about how it is that I ordain the way that I pray. So, way past time, Acts chapter 4, you got the three up, got the three down. Disciples are praying, they, me, and you. Maybe that is something that you can incorporate in your prayer time when you start praying and you start saying, God, I'm not going to spend all my prayer time on they, because you know they, and you know they need you. So, I'm going to then just say pray. I'm gonna, I just want to be bold. I want to be resolved in what I'm doing. And God, I want you to have nothing that I'm doing to impede you being you. Verse 31, And when they prayed... The place in which they were together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Can you imagine what that would be like? I 
thought it'd always be cool to be part of two church services. First church service, first church service would be where they prayed and the whole place was shaking, and everybody's like, "Yeah, these guys know what they're doing." Yeah, yeah, this is this, this place has it. Go, this place has it going on. And the second church service, when we actually take up the offering, Acts chapter five, remember, Ananias and Sapphira, remember, remember. I always thought, what, what would that do to our? What would that do to the atmosphere of the church that we take up the offering and then all of a sudden you start having people just falling over? <laughs> That would be that would be hard that'd be a hard church service to have. So, but I say you know what would that be like? That might be kind of cool to uh, uh you know. Anyways, okay. <laughs> Things that go up here. Thoughts.